Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode. Yes, another glorious episode of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. This time around, I thought we'd take some time and examine one of the unsung heroes of the wine and spirits world. That's right, the cork. These things are running around all over the place, right? I mean, I've got a drawer full of them at home, which mm, probably says more about me than I'd like it to. But have you ever wondered where corks come from and maybe how they're made? Are they fashioned by cork elves in some dark medieval forest? Or... Is there some sinister industrial factory in China billowing smoke and cranking these little nuggets out by the thousands? As you might guess, neither of those hypotheticals are true, and we'll get into all of that and more in this week's episode. But first, I think this might be a good little opportunity before we jump in and get too deep for you to make yourself a drink. This week's featured cocktail is the Blood and Sand, named for the eponymous 1922 bullfighting movie by Rudolph Valentino. And there's a couple little connections I'll make here that actually tie in nicely with this week's episode. To make the Blood and Sand cocktail, you'll need three quarters of an ounce of blood orange juice, three quarters of an ounce of sweet vermouth, three quarters of an ounce of cherry hearing, which is a cherry liqueur, and three quarters of an ounce of blended scotch. Since this drink has citrus in it, you'll want to combine all these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, shake it for about 20 seconds, and then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass. Some recipes out there also call for a flamed orange peel garnish, so if that's a move you've got in your cocktail repertoire, then this is an excellent place to use it. Now, back to those connections. Two of the countries that produce a lot of cork and are therefore important to this episode are Spain and Portugal. Now with this cocktail, the blood and sand, the Spain connection is pretty obvious with reference to bullfighting. But I also wanted to throw in a little shout out to Portugal because cork production accounts for a sizable chunk of that nation's economy, along with wine and port production, of course. When I visited Lisbon for the first time about a year and a half ago, and you'll be hearing more about this trip later, I ran into a strange little liqueur called Jinja, which is made from sour cherries. So my wife and I brought a couple little bottles of this home and we didn't really like it straight. We couldn't figure out what to do with it in cocktails. Everything we tried was kind of blah. And then the blood and sand came along and it was just perfect. So if you ever end up with a bottle of Jinja and don't know how to use it in your cocktails, consider swapping it out for cherry hearing in the classic cocktails that employ that liqueur. It definitely does the trick. So now that we've got you all situated with a classic cocktail that harkens back to two very important cork producing countries, let's dig a bit deeper into our favorite bottle closures. First, we'll look at the history of cork and how it's produced. Then 
we're going to consider the four main types of bottle closures that you will most commonly encounter in the wine and spirits world today. I'll also give you a few tips on how to identify and avoid a common flaw called cork taint in your wine and spirits. And we're going to round out this episode with some tips for opening corks or, more importantly, rescuing broken corks like a boss. This episode, we're going to be flitting in between the wine and spirits worlds. So I think it's important to remember that every good bar cart should have at least a couple bottles of wine on it for food pairing and entertaining purposes. Cork is made from the outer bark of the cork oak, Quercus suber, which is native to Portugal and many regions of the Western Mediterranean basin, including, interestingly enough, North Africa. One thing that surprised me is that Quercus suber is an evergreen oak, which kind of blows our minds here in the United States because oak trees in our world are one of those quintessential deciduous trees that shed their leaves in autumn. I mean, I know that growing up, I spent plenty of time raking oak leaves in my yard, so the thought of an evergreen oak tree that never loses them kind of blows my mind. Archaeological accounts of cork usage date back to at least the time of the ancient Greeks, with unquestionable widespread use during the Roman Empire right up through the present day. Cork was used expectedly to seal containers of various sizes, It was also used to make buoys and flotation devices, and it was even cut and shaped into footwear because of its natural shock-absorbing characteristics. Right, if you look at pretty much any piece of bark with a magnifying glass, it's filled with little pores. And at a microscopic level, it's got almost a honeycomb, like a dense honeycomb appearance with all these little cavities that can be compressed to reduce shock. And as luck would have it, The bark of the cork oak just happens to be a perfect combination of sponginess and sturdiness, which is why it was used traditionally in such a wide range of applications. It also does a really good job fitting the form of its container, which has been a huge bonus for cork makers and bottle makers, especially as manufacturing procedures for both have become more and more standardized and precise. We'll get to that a bit later. Another cool thing about cork is that it's a renewable resource. A mature, healthy cork tree can have its outer bark harvested, depending on who you talk to, every seven to nine years. So when you're driving through cork country, it's not uncommon to see trees that look like they've had their entire trunk denuded. Because they have. Don't be concerned, though. The trees recover quite well, and the people who harvest the cork, they keep a close eye on the health of their tree herd, because healthy trees are good for literally everyone cork makers, wine and spirits drinkers, the earth. Yeah, like literally everyone. We've got a video over on the show notes page for this episode at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast that shows cork being harvested from a tree using traditional hand tools. It's literally fascinating to watch one guy with just a hatchet systematically strip an entire tree trunk. But if you don't have time to watch the whole five minute video, at least skip ahead and watch him pull the sections of bark away from the trunk. It really makes you appreciate kind of human ingenuity and how even a basic set of tools can be used really effectively. One of the things you'll notice if you watch this video is how dry and, I guess, Mediterranean the landscape looks. It's dusty and it's bright, and there's vegetation but not a whole lot of water or moisture to be seen in the environment. 
When I visited Portugal in January 2017, we were able to check out some cork trees in their natural environment. And our tour guide brought up a really interesting factoid that is particularly relevant today, specifically to the environmental concerns that are challenging people around the world. What he said doesn't have so much to do with cork trees as it does with eucalyptus trees, which were brought into Portugal as a way to make quick money in the paper products industry as the country recovered from things like dictatorial rule and near communism at various points in the 20th century. There's apparently a common saying among Portuguese cork farmers and landowners that goes, the eucalyptus trees are for us. The pine trees are for our children, and the cork trees are for our grandchildren. This refers to the amount of time each species of tree takes to mature to a point where it may be harvested for a profit. Eucalyptus trees can be harvested almost each decade. They grow super fast. Pine trees take a little bit longer and are often a bit more lucrative because you can do things with them beyond paper pulp occasionally. But cork trees cannot be harvested for the first time until they're at least 50 years old, at which point they can be harvested only every nine years for about a century and a half, resulting in about 15 harvests over the lifespan of a healthy tree. This eucalyptus to pine to cork harvest ratio in terms of kind of like speed versus time also somewhat represents the breakdown of Portugal's forest biodiversity, with its predominant species being eucalyptus and pine, right? The things you can plant and harvest fast, while cork oak comes in kind of a distant third. However, what this breakdown doesn't reflect is the huge loss of biodiversity that resulted from the widespread planting of eucalyptus. One noteworthy victim is the sweet chestnut tree, which was once a staple crop in Portugal, but now reflects less than 1% of the country's national forest area, according to an article by the LA Times. Now, here's specifically what our tour guide said that really blew my mind. According to him, eucalyptus trees have this really fascinating network property that allows a grove of them to kind of team up and destroy a water table. Think about where eucalyptus trees are from. It's Australia, not exactly the wettest place on earth. So it would kind of make sense that these trees are adapted to consume as much water as possible when it's available. Kind of like the camel of trees. Now, obviously, I didn't take this guy at his word. Obviously, biased, you know, you want to protect the cork trees. So, you know, anything bad we can say about the eucalyptus might might be a good thing, right? Convince the, the unwitting tourists. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any scientific peer-reviewed evidence to support this network effect that our guide was pitching us. But there are a lot of articles out there from places like South Africa, which has a lot of imported eucalyptus, that show how these trees can really dry up a water table and threaten native plants. I mean, sometimes they're brought in to do things like reduce swamp areas where there are places that have issues with malaria. So if they can drain a swamp, imagine the effect that they're going to have on a healthy ecosystem, right? That, that might tip over into kind of the unhealthy realm. And when eucalyptus trees take over and conditions get super dry, there's also the risk of wildfires, which have recently been a problem for cork farmers in Portugal. 
which doesn't get a ton of rainfall to begin with. See, eucalyptus trees have flammable sap, and when the tree ignites, its bark very quickly flames and sheds into hundreds or thousands of flying embers that are then carried by the wind to ignite still other trees. It's an unsettling phenomenon to be sure, and just in case anyone out there is wondering if eucalyptus is causing these sort of problems elsewhere in the world, look no further than California. I feel like that cork pop sound effect made that last point a little bit less sinister. But uh, moving on, now that we know a bit more about cork history and growing conditions, let's take a look at how this material pertains to us as we try to build the ultimate modern bar cart. As I was mentioning before, standardization and mechanization in both the bottle and cork industries really made a powerful impact on the wine and spirits world. In the pre-industrial days, you really couldn't make a consistently good vintage of wine because each bottle cork pairing would do a better or worse job of keeping bad stuff out and good stuff in. The result, generally, was that you couldn't reliably age wine for a very long time. But once things got standardized, winemakers had access suddenly to corks that led to a more predictable rate of oxidation. Now, what does that even begin to mean? Well, oxidation is what happens when air mixes with wine, and this is what accounts for some of the notes we know and love in mature, well-aged wines, right? Those tasting notes that get people excited. And these tasting notes, in turn, when put in the hands of a wine critic with a pen, are what can fetch lots of money for a given bottle relative to its peers. Some types of wine, like Madeira and Sherry, are intentionally oxidized. But for the most part, the non-fortified wine world views oxidation as a flaw. Only in very small and gradual increments can oxygen work its magic on a bottle in a cellar and be deemed beneficial. So, if winemakers can reliably predict how much oxygen a cork will let in over time, then they can have more confidence in and control over how they and others treat that wine. This might seem kind of non-revolutionary, maybe like not such a big deal, but when you magnify this control, this effect, this precision across an entire industry and a worldwide consumer base, it's really monumental. It really changed the industry. This brings us to the first two types of closures you're going to encounter most commonly in the wine and spirits world, cork and composite cork. Now, if you think about it, you probably have a pretty intuitive sense of how to tell these two different materials apart. Real cork usually looks like it comes from one contiguous piece of cork bark, because it does, and composite material is a compressed, smooshed-together mass of little cork bits, like the little leftovers from the uh, real cork. So every real cork is truly unique, dare I say quirky, and most composite corks they, they all kind of look the same. They've got the look of those cork boards that you'd tack things up on in school or at work. Scientific accounts vary as to how much oxygen a real cork lets into the bottle per year relative to a composite cork, but the number isn't all that important for us non-winemakers. What is important is that real cork is way better than composite cork when it comes to keeping out the bad stuff and letting in just enough oxygen. 
What this means is that if you encounter a composite cork in your wine, chances are it's meant to be drunk young. You shouldn't wait. Don't age it with your elegant left bank Bordeaux. Crush that bad boy with a steak. Looking at it a different way, composite corks are fairly popular in mass-produced bargain white wines and young, uncomplicated red wines. So if it comes in a Magnum bottle and costs less than 20 bucks, you're probably looking at a composite cork and... In these situations, at least to me, composite makes sense. Increasingly, we've been seeing more synthetic corks and screw tops entering the market, and these are the other two common closures we should discuss. Synthetic tops, you know, those kind of plasticky feeling corks, and screw tops with membranes have one main advantage over real cork, and that advantage is that they prevent a common wine flaw called cork taint. Doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? Cork taint is another name for the presence of a compound called, wait for it, 2,4,6-trichloroanisole, also known as TCA. And if you've got this bummer of a chemical in your wine, chances are it'll smell somewhere between moldy cardboard and wet dog. Yum, yum, yum. Of course, the compound can be present in different concentrations, and some people are more sensitive to it than others, but the moral of the story is it's bad for the wine. TCA equals bad. This is why at nice restaurants, if you order a bottle of wine, they're usually going to present you with the cork and let you smell it before accepting the bottle. If the wine has cork taint, you should be able to detect it, especially because it's certain ammonia-based compounds from the cork that cause cork taint in the first place. So, pro tip, if you're not used to going out to nice restaurants like yours truly, and you go to one and somebody hands you the cork, you know, give it a sniff. Even if you're not trying to evaluate, just make them happy. Give it a sniff. That's that's what they want you to do. And and then just nod your head and say that's fine. And you'll have your wine, and and the stress will be over. Returning to screw tops and synthetic corks. No actual cork means no possibility of cork taint. Right. That's the benefit we were talking about. These types of closures have also been gaining ground in recent years by attempting to provide more and better options for winemakers who want to control the oxidation process as wine ages. They've been kind of working with technology to to really be able to to give winemakers a lot more control, just like they got with real cork. So in the long run, it's entirely possible that synthetic will eclipse the humble natural cork, but you know what? It hasn't happened yet. And this is largely due to the quality control measures put in place by cork producers during the harvesting and processing portions of cork manufacturing. The result is that, at least anecdotally, incidences of cork taint in bottles that use real natural cork have been on the decline for years. Pair that with the singularly pleasing sound of a real cork being removed from a bottle and... You know what? I think it's safe to say that real cork will always have a place in the wine and spirits world. But you know what? That last statement does remind me, what about spirits? You know, we've been talking about wine here so far, pretty much. Well, there are three main points to make when it comes to cork and spirits. The first is that spirits can absolutely be affected by cork taint. There's nothing about increased alcohol that in some way eliminates or prevents TCA from occurring. But spirits often make this funky-smelling compound more difficult to detect due to things like alcohol burn and more robust flavor profiles. So 
if you do detect cork taint in your whiskey, for example, it might be a good deed for you to inform your retailer since such a noticeable flaw in a spirit is likely going to impact a number of bottles in that batch. And it's just good for everybody to know so that if they need to do a recall, they can do that recall. Another point of contention when it comes to corks and spirits and wines is whether or not you want the liquid to be in contact with the cork when storing the bottle. And this is one where the road diverges. For wines, you definitely want to store those on their side so that the liquid can stay in contact with the cork and create more of an effective seal. The oxygen is still going to find a way in as the bottle ages, but bacteria and other harmful stuff won't as long as the cork stays wet. For spirits, the opposite is true. If you've got a real cork and that cork spends any significant time in contact with the alcohol, there's an increased chance that it'll dry out and either break off or allow for evaporation, which is going to change the taste of the spirit. And obviously, if you let that happen over a long enough period of time, you're going to walk up to your liquor cabinet and open it to find an empty bottle. And nobody wants that. Speaking of which, the last thing to keep in mind is that you really want a good solid seal on your spirits bottles if you want to prevent that sort of evaporation from happening. So for nice spirits, look for bottles with either real cork or rubber synthetic closures that are going to form a solid seal with the bottle. Generally, stuff that comes with the screw top is going to be lower end product anyway, which you'll consume faster. But this is just one more little factoid to tuck away and keep in mind as you do your spirits shopping, especially for stuff you'd like to keep around for more than a few months. Before we round out this episode, I want to take a few seconds here to explain how to properly remove a cork from a bottle and even how to rescue a cork that has maybe been partially broken off. First thing to ask yourself in this situation is what tools you have available for opening your bottle. And here... We're really talking about wine, but I've definitely had instances where the cork has been broken off in my whiskey bottle and I've had to resort to the old corkscrew. So these scenarios do apply across genres. The classic option is probably the waiter's corkscrew, and this is my favorite for a few reasons. First, it's compact and foldable, so you can buy a couple, take them on the road when necessary. Just don't try and bring one on the Eurostar train. Learn that one the hard way. If you're going through a metal detector, you're probably not going to be allowed to keep the corkscrew. Second, there are usually two differently spaced lips used for leveraging the cork. And this is hard to describe technically without a visual, but the upshot is if you can tunnel your corkscrew into the cork, get it started with one lip then screw it in a little further and readjust your leverage point to the second lip, this makes it very unlikely that you'll meet a cork you can't conquer with just one hand in a stable surface. Basically, it gives you a little bit of flexibility to get the cork started and then bring it home with the second lip. And then finally, you have a lot of flexibility with this corkscrew in terms of the angle that you go in at. So if you have to rescue a partially broken or somewhat sunken cork, this is the tool you're going to want to use so that you can take advantage of that flexibility and use it to kind of finesse whatever remains of the cork out of the opening. Because of how a corkscrew works, there are a 
bunch of different models available. On the mechanical side, you've got the ones with the little arms or wings that go up as you screw in the corkscrew and which you then press down evenly at the same time to remove the cork. Then you've got kind of a screwless version that just has two flat prongs that you push down on either side of the cork. And then as you pull it out, those exert just enough pressure to kind of grab the cork and remove it from the bottle opening. I haven't tried one of those, but apparently they work well. And then finally, you've got a bunch of various electric and suction-based corkscrews that either require electricity or they cost quite a bit. So I'm not really qualified to comment on most of those, but I can tell you, if you get really good with the waiter's corkscrew, you really don't need any other option. Now, let's say you do find yourself in a situation where some unwitting acolyte has gotten themselves in a pickle and failed to extract a cork correctly, resulting in a precarious situation where your group of desperate revelers is debating between pushing the crumbling cork down into the drink or simply giving up. This just won't do. But here are the steps you can take to rescue your bottle in distress. Step one, rescue the bottle gently, politely, from the clutches of the defeated decorker in training. Step two, unsheath your trusty waiter's corkscrew and prepare your spiral blade for combat. This is starting to sound weird. Step three, carefully clear any loose cork from the opening so that you have a solid, if uneven, ground upon which to do battle. Step four, select the thickest and least damaged section of cork and begin screwing in the corkscrew gently but firmly, making sure that you're not too close to the edge of the cork. If you're too close to the edge, sometimes you can end up kind of churning some of the cork out and it's just, it's bad. So avoid the edge if possible. Step five, when the corkscrew is twisted completely through the cork, select your leverage setting and apply extremely even pressure while pulling, making sure to tilt the bottle slightly so that no loose cork follows into the bottle. This is not an exact science, but if you're strategic, gentle, and poised, you should be able to rescue your bottle with little to no consequence to the product beyond perhaps a few crumbs of cork in the most dire of circumstances. Like driving in suboptimal conditions, this maneuver benefits from experience when all variables are normal, so be sure to practice your bottle opening skills often to be sure that you're prepared. I hope you found this episode to be useful and at least a bit entertaining, especially since corks play a silent yet crucial role in the transport, storage, and overall flavor experience of our favorite bar cart beverages. If you have any questions about corks or anything else in the wine, spirits, or cocktail realm, please shoot us an email at podcast at modernbarcart.com. And if you've got any amazing corks or cork art you want to share, well, head on over to Facebook or Instagram and give us a little shout out so that we can check out what you've got. Until next time, I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Cheers. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. 
Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed impeccable closure-filling prowess and oxidative nuance by Quercus Suber, and a little bit of Portugal traveling, eucalyptus researching, cork rescuing magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.